Hello, Bookstu viewers and listeners. It's uh, July, so we're coming, really coming out of the pandemic, um, and the world is, seems to be opening up for us. But uh, my world opened up a couple of months ago when I was reading my online copy of Bitch Magazine, which I highly, highly recommend. And there was an article in there by a woman named Kate Washington. And her book, the book she was discussing, had a very intriguing title called Already Toast. And it turned out to be a book about caregiving. And I am happily not in a position with either my 93-year-old mom or my 34-year-old daughter that I am giving care to anybody, or my husband for that matter. Everyone's in, in good shape so far. But um, the Kate's story was so compelling that I thought that I read it and then I kind of put it out of my head or it fell out of my head. And wouldn't you know, a few days later, I'm in the car, I'm listening to NPR and there's Kate being interviewed. So I'm like, okay, this is destiny. I will just send her an inquiry and ask if she would come on the show because it was a whole uh, NPR show. The topic was caregiving and she was such a strong voice. So um, I'd, with, I'm sorry for that really long introduction, but I would like you to meet Kate Washington, the author of Already Toast. And since this is kind of an intense topic, I warned Kate that I wanted to ask her a silly question uh, to start out with at least. So Kate, my silly question. There you are on the West Coast, right? You're in Northern California. I assume many people you deal with in the media are on the East Coast. I have a devilish time counting on my fingers to figure out what's Pacific time, what's Eastern time, and do I go forward or do I go backwards? And I struggle with it every single time. Since you're on the West Coast, do you like have frequent eye rolls of people from the, if, about people from the East Coast who just can't seem to get it down? I'm not sure about eye rolls, but I will say that I have noticed in talking with people and especially media folks about the book, that there's a very strong assumption that everybody else is on East Coast time. So I have had some 6 a.m. meetings proposed to me. Um, in one case, I am actually going to give a talk um, later this fall at 6 a.m. my time, but it's for a nonprofit whose work I value really highly. So I'm willing to get up, drink my coffee early, um, try to get my hair brushed and get on, on Zoom to give that talk. Well, I hope you at least get to go to bed at 7 p.m. <laughs> your time that night. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for indulging me because I think I told you in my email that I just have to count back on my fingers. No and, uh, it, so I'm glad I got that out of the way. So um, to give a little background on your book and why you wrote it, um, let's start with when you were 42. You're married to a college professor. You have two children. Uh, you're a freelance writer, everything seems to be going along swimmingly, and then... Then, on actually the very day that my um, younger daughter was starting kindergarten, so for anyone out there who's a parent, when you get to that sort of elementary school years, it's like, okay, I've made it, they're going to be taken care of for some time in the day, I can count on my schedule a little bit again, and as a freelancer, I you know, had a flexible schedule, but I was looking forward to getting more time to develop my career and, and work on some new things. 
And on that morning, um, Brad, my husband came and he's always worn a beard and he said, he's like, you know, touching the beard and saying like, I have these weird lumps on my jawline. Like, do you think I should go see the doctor about them? They're, they're new. And he's Canadian. So he used to play road hockey and he said, you know, it might be that I took a stick and I just don't remember like having those lumps or whatever, but he'd also happened to lose quite a lot of weight over the preceding um, several months. And I thought about that and that question kind of nagged at me and I was like, you should definitely go to the doctor. So he went to the doctor and as anyone who's ever tried to get a diagnosis for something complicated or unusual knows, it took forever. It took like six months before we got a diagnosis back and a lot of pushing, a lot of like, yes, we actually do want that biopsied um, before getting a diagnosis of a really rare lymphoma. And even then, we weren't sure if it would need treatment and it was only when it really turned aggressive and made its presence felt in an emergency kind of situation that um, I was really plunged into the thick of caregiving for him and he was really plunged into the world of very serious disease. And it wasn't, so at first you really had to be a strong advocate and mm -hmm. you had to get past, you know, what I picked up from the book is that there's a certain amount of condescension from much of the medical community um, towards patients in general, maybe towards women specifically, or you're just, you know, how many women have been misdiagnosed, not diagnosed because of um, people in the medical profession not taking their concerns seriously. So that was your, your first role was really as an advocate, and that was not easy. And I could see in the book that you were, you were very frustrated. So that almost set the stage for for the next phase, and I guess as you got into the caregiving part, the advocating part would almost seem kind of easy. Yeah, I mean, it's easier in a sense than some of the like really emotionally fraught challenges of caring for somebody who was really ill, who I loved very much, and who for a time really didn't look like he would make it. So there's you know the emotional strain, the physical strains, and exhaustion of that kind of intensive caregiving. But yeah, then the advocacy started to feel like, okay, well, I'm Googling things. I'm trying to read the studies on this rare disease so that I can come to meetings armed with some knowledge. Because at some points, you know, I think knowledge is power and sometimes physicians are reluctant to give that up. And then also a little bit, um, you know, the attitudes I think range widely about how willing they are to accept patients understanding of themselves and of their own conditions, as you just alluded to, you know, women are notoriously underdiagnosed, people of color are notoriously underdiagnosed and have to really advocate for themselves. Um, you know, in my husband's case, he's neither a woman nor a person of color, but still had a challenge just to get to the point because he looked young and healthy and, and uh, it was difficult to get to the point of anyone taking it seriously as a rare disease because it was something that we heard over and over about him like we've really never seen this before and just I'm sure many of your viewers have you know are fully aware you really never want to be the patient to whom the doctor is saying oh, we've just never seen this before what a surprise like that's yeah, not um, a great unless you get to go to somewhere 
like some cancer center or, you know, here we have Dana-Farber where, you know, if there's something unusual going on, you're in Boston we're close to all the best places to get treatment. So you still don't want to hear it in any case, but I think there are circumstances where, uh, where you're luckier than, uh, than others, like maybe who are in like the Midwest or in a really rural area. But um, I, don't, I don't think at the beginning of the book, since you had never been a caretaker previously, it, I think the range of what was going to happen to you, I mean, first, firstly, you're worrying about whether your husband is going to survive and the effect on your family, but then there's the effect on you. And I think this, uh, the experience kind of forced you to take a societal and historical view of caretaking and what that's meant to women you know, since time immemorial and why there seems to be some belief that women are inherently better at caretaking than men are. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, you know, thank you for, for asking about that because that really was one of my big projects in the book was not just to tell my own story of caregiving but also think a little more broadly about it culturally, historically, and sort of sociologically as well in terms of, you know, how much economic impact there is, especially and disproportionately on women, even more so on women of color, um, for doing unpaid family caregiving. I was really conscious as I set out to write this book that, you know, there the latest estimates are that there are 53 million people doing unpaid family caregiving in the U.S. That's a number from AARP. And I'm just one of those 53 million. That's a lot of stories out there. And I can't represent all of those stories, but I did want to try to take a broad brush and a, a broad approach to researching and trying to understand something of what that means for all of those 53 million people and their wildly diverse, different kinds of stories and situations. I was also really conscious that I was a pretty privileged caregiver. You know, I we had financial resources. You spoke earlier about, you know, the challenges of if you find yourself with a rare diagnosis in a rural situation. We live a mile from the medical center where my husband got excellent treatment and, you know, I could walk there sometimes if I wasn't in a rush, which I usually was in a rush. But, um, but you know, I didn't want to just write a story of how hard it was on me. I wanted to write a story of how hard caregiving is broadly and how much you know damage that's often doing to individuals and to families um, people lose money they lose jobs we don't have paid family leave um, the economic effects are particularly outsized on women it's like a lifetime loss because you're not paying into retirement and that links in with all of the other forms of you know unpaid care that women provide and as you say are kind of assumed to be naturally, better at. And I think, you know, raising a voice and offering a critique of that dynamic instead of leaving it kind of invisible and behind closed doors is, I hope, one of the early steps to, to making more change in that arena. I thought it was really encouraging for once that um, child care and personal care was identified as being a part of infrastructure in uh, the president's uh, proposed bills. And I know there was a lot of kickback from certain politicians 
oh, infrastructure is bridges and roads. Somehow I don't think many women said infrastructure is bridges and roads because every family has an infrastructure, you know, and every neighborhood has an, and every town, and you know, every, there's all infrastructure there, but the one that impacts us most is the ones within our own families. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I thought uh, it was very praiseworthy that your book, that you took into account in your book that as, as difficult as it was for you and your family, there were certain advantages you had over many other families. And even in your, um, in the excerpt that was in Bitch Magazine and in NPR, you emphasized that. And I was really, really glad to hear it because that's not a perspective that's, that's often presented. Nor is, you know, I think there have been other books about caregiving, but they seem to focus very, uh, very tightly on this was my experience. They don't look out really necessarily look outside, which to me is one of the most important and compelling parts of your book, that you look outside your own family. But I still want to, you know, I still have some, some wondering about your own family. At what point did you, real, did you think that things were going okay enough for you to write this book? Were you writing the book in your head all along? You are a writer and a thinker. Were you writing the book all as it was going along or did, was there some point where you said, okay, now things are under control enough so that I can write? How did that work? Because you, I mean, you wanted yeah. to maintain your career. That was very important, critical. I, I was writing little bits and pieces that kind of gradually I did knit into the book in often different format, usually different format and much revised. Um, so Brad was going through a stem cell transplant in 2016 and he was in the hospital for about four and a half months just for you know your viewers who, who haven't heard the full story. Um, and that period when he was in the hospital was incredibly difficult. He was really, really ill. And I, and also his parents, and spent a lot of time at the hospital bedside, and he really wasn't up for conversation or anything like that. And at that time, I stayed in an online writing workshop that I've been in on and off for a long time, where we submit kind of monthly pages and do critique. And sometimes for that monthly deadline, I was writing some kind of ranty, almost like a journal entry piece that I would just submit, like... I would just close my eyes and hit submit like 10 minutes before the deadline. Um, but it did keep me writing and keep me recording what I was experiencing in the hospital. And that's where some of the pieces where I tried to retain that feeling of raw, you know, really being in it in the book. And those pieces were really useful to incorporate into the book. I was at the same time maintaining a blog to keep family and friends informed because one of the pieces of caregiving that's actually an important piece of the work is maintaining those connections and everyone wants to know what's happening when somebody is critically ill and it's a lot of work to keep everybody you know up to speed so we had a blog for people to read and that was useful to kind of revisit and get timeline stuff and and figure things out but i started really weaving in some of the other strands of the book um the next kind of piece I started developing was this whole strand about um, the literature and culture around caregiving, which really arose out of having revisited old favorite books like Middlemarch and Jane Eyre and Little Women 
Anne of Green Gables and noticing that they were full of caregivers. Um, I have an academic background in Victorian literature, and so I hadn't really thought that much about the caregiving dynamics in those books, but they were rife, and so I started writing a little bit about those. Um, I took some time, even in the fall after Brad um, stem cell transplant, I took a weekend at one point and spent it really intensively writing because at that point I was starting to think like the book that I wanted to read about caregiving while I was going through it, I did not find that book. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to write it. <laughs> and so that's I started developing that pretty early on, but the book went through a lot of changes and evolution over time. Have you... Um... Have you, have you, people reached out to you when they've read the book? And um, I, I'm trying to imagine what people would say. I would think they would find it as a comfort and a vindication. Was anybody unhappy with, um, with your book? Did you get any criticism about, um, about how you saw your role? Especially, I mean, it's it's basically a feminist book. I mean, you, I yeah. don't think anyone would dispute it. Did you get any pushback on it at all? I got a little here and there. I actually try not to read too many of like the online reviews because the book is the book, and I can't go back and change it now. And I don't want to just be, you know, um, stewing or fretting over those reviews. I got a lot of emails and direct outreach from other caregivers who said they felt validated, said they felt more seen by the book. Um, and that I found really, really meaningful and really rewarding um, in the, as kind of a return for writing it. That was, you know, what I, what I really hoped was that it would help people feel more seen. You know, you mentioned the bitch uh, article earlier. I did get a few comments on Twitter, like, oh, nice title for a magazine from, guys and those I just like okay we're moving on from that that's you're not my target audience if you don't if you object to bitch magazine I guess trolls got a troll right yeah. but you know not too much trolling and mostly really positive feedback um you know I have heard from a few folks including a couple friends who are still in the thick of caregiving and they're like I'm not sure if I'm brave enough to like read this like while I'm in the hospital. I'm like, yeah, maybe maybe give it a, a little while to settle down. It's it might be intense or scary, you know, for somebody who's still in that um, in a really intense way. I don't. I guess I can understand their reluctance, but to me, it would just be a comfort to know that uh, someone went through what you are going through and came out the other side and that your marriage is still intact. And I think another really amazing part of the book is that you're very frank about the impact of, of Brad's illness on your family life and especially on your marriage. Um, I was, you know, I was thinking after I finished it that it would be kind of be interesting if Brad was a writer to have him kind of put yes. in, well, that's right, an addendum but then I said, nah, I wouldn't want to read a he said, she said book because that would take the focus off the caregiver and the focus belongs on the caregiver on this, in this instance. But I guess I am curious about what Brad thought about it uh, once I assume you gave it to him to read before it was published. 
Yeah, he he read it in its developmental stages and also has read the finished version um, and read it before it came out. And he was actually incredibly supportive, even about the more challenging pieces. Um, it does help that he's a writer. And so, you know, when I started to have doubts about it, which, you know, especially right on the eve of publication, I did have some of those like, oh, God, like now everybody's going to know what I was thinking all along. Like, why did I say all these things? Um, and he said, you know, if you're not telling the truth, there's no point in writing the book. And like, you have to be real about it. And he was really supportive in a way that has actually been really helpful and kind of healing in some ways for our marriage because he turned around and supported me in a very different way than the support that I was providing to him through his illness. Um, and it's funny, he is telling his own story. He has a book coming out very shortly about graft versus host disease, which was his main complication after stem cell transplant and about which there's not very much written. So it's a very different kind of book, but he is, um, if anybody wants to do that side by side, they will soon be able to. <laughs> and is the title of his book going to be, We've Never Seen This Before? <laughs> I think that would be a great you know, that title. That would have been a one. <laughs> um, so speaking more about your family, I want to lead into a reading that I'm going to ask you to do because we haven't really talked much about the impact of um, Brad's illness and your role as a caretaker on your children. So um, why don't we, um, I, I selected this part for reasons that I'll go into briefly after you do the reading, but um, why don't you set up this part of the book which really kind of grabbed at my heart? Sure, so my, uh, Brad's and my daughters were nine and five when he was diagnosed. They're, they're 15 and 11 now, so we're in a very different stage. And one of the chapters in the book is about um, the general idea of sandwiched caregiving being caught in between, which is typically being caught in between two generations. You know, the classic situation is somebody caring for an elderly parent while also having young children at home. In my case, it was lopsided because I was caring for a spouse and, and young children. And so that kind of had different ramifications where, you know, the partner who normally I would have been co-parenting with was not available for that. But, um, one of the books that I was reading to my then, you know, five and six year old, um, sometimes was Madeline, the classic series. And I noticed, um, you know, not only its relevance to, uh, childhood, but its relevance to caregiving in the figure of Miss Clavel. And so I'll just read a short section, um, from the book and forgive me if there's glare from the glasses that I need to put on to be able to see this. Seeing is good. Yes. <laughs> Afraid of a disaster. I never suffered from particularly high levels of anxiety before Brad's illness, but once Brad was doing a little better and I could spare the time to take an assessment in my doctor's office, the results surprised me how intense my anxiety was and how much it was interfering with my life. I was carrying on, I was always carrying on, but the effort was taking almost everything I had. For me, the anxiety of crisis caregiving gave way directly to hypervigilance. One day, reading aloud to our younger daughter, I recognized precisely how I felt. I was like Miss Clavel, the long-suffering headmistress of the Parisian school in Ludwig Bemelman's picture book, Madeline. At the book's outset, Miss Clavel wakes up in the middle of the night knowing something is not right, 
sitting bolt upright, worried about the children in her charge and running fast and faster to their aid. It turns out Madeline has fallen ill and must go to the hospital where she requires an appendectomy. Even after Madeline has recovered though, Miss Clavel cannot rest. She wakes up in the night, hyper alert to the children's cries. Caregiving and parenting through medical trauma have conditioned me too to expect further emergencies, to be ready at any moment to run fast and faster to someone's rescue, even when I don't really need to. I read the book as a child and as a parent have read the book aloud to my daughters more times than I can count. But until Brad got sick, I never gave a second thought to Miss Clavel. She is sort of school Jacqueline of all trades, mistress of none. She is the headmistress apparently, but there is also a board of trustees, which seems excessive for a school with a mere 12 pupils, all of whom seem to stay there all the time and even go on international trips together. That's a reference to the sequels. As a child, I thought Miss Clavel was a nun. She wears a severe looking habit, but as an adult, I realized that nuns don't go by Miss Anything. I assumed her garb must be some kind of French teacher situation I'm unfamiliar with, but it actually more closely resembles that of a nurse. Besides, we never see any actual instruction happening in this school. Miss Clavel's role is more akin to nurse or nanny. She shepherds Madeline and 11 other girls around Paris in two straight lines. She worries they're unwell. She wakes up terrified in the middle of the night and she runs afraid of a disaster fast and faster with the illustrations showing her wheeling forward at an ever more impossible angle. Poor Miss Clavel. I get it. I really do. I too wake up in the middle of the night thinking something is not right. I have lately had children in my sole charge more than I expected. I've been traumatized by needing to call the doctor suddenly when least expected to. I have a lot of problems with Madeline. It drives me a bit crazy that her name is neither spelled nor pronounced that way in French, though granted it's an American picture book, and even more with its sequels, obvious money grabs with nonsensical storylines and verses that don't scan. But the verisimilitude of Miss Clavel is not among them. She is scarred, clearly, by being the sole adult in charge of children who need her, who get sick, for whose health she may be held responsible. She knows, as caregivers do, that often something will not be right and she can't let it go. And um, that's also part of a discussion about the after effects of caregiving and how caregivers often do become hypervigilant, have a hard time letting go of that anxiety. And it's um, in between a discussion of, there was a point at one point when my younger daughter got croup in the middle of the night, woke up unable to breathe and I had to take her to the emergency room my husband was already in the same hospital, you know, eight floors above on the cancer floor. And I remember in the emergency room thinking about, because she'd squeaked out, this like, I can't breathe. And so I had to race her to the hospital in the middle of the night, knowing that my husband was already in that hospital. It was while he was going through chemo. And my daughter was really old for croup. Um, I was lucky that my mother-in-law was staying with us and could stay with my other child, who was nine or nine or 10 at that point and who it would have been weird to leave alone at 1 a.m. unawares. So um, I think that kind of situation, you know, once you go through something like that repeatedly, you're always a little bit afraid, well, that could happen again at any moment. And I think Miss Clavel, after Madeline's appendicitis, very much has that, uh, has that feeling in play. Well, uh, let's hope that you can transcend and your family can transcend that constant worry. Um, our time's up, Kate, but I wanna thank you so much for sharing 
um, your story, for uh, joining me on Book Stew, and for writing a book that is so important that everybody should read, uh, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're the person who's receiving the care, or whether you're someone who's going to be in your position someday, because all of us are going to be either caregivers or cared for. We just have to hope that someone as wonderful as you is on the caregiving end. So thank you so much for joining me today. It was really a pleasure, and I can't recommend your book, Already Toast, highly enough. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And Bookstew viewers, I wanted to tell you a little bit about my August guest. Uh, my August guest will be L. Annette Binder, who is the author of a book called The Vanishing Sky. It's a World War II novel inspired by the author's father's time in the Hitler Youth Movement during the final six months of the Third Reich. That's kind of like, whoa. You're not going to want to miss that discussion. So thank you for joining us today, and have a good night.